0: How can the internet make a currency that doesn't even exist, and and people are trading the original Vine video like it's a baseball card? This feels like a scam, right? Are you confused? Don't be. Let's help you know a little more about blockchain. One of the features of data and the internet has been that it is infinitely copyable. There's no scarcity of digital items, because each one can be an exact replica of another through the early part of the internet's history there has been a battle against that which has largely been ineffective companies try to put locks on digital content and ingenious people come up with ways to break those locks so we've largely ended up with folks on one side who try to get governments and laws to make it illegal to break the locks and on the other side folks who try to just accept that data is infinitely copyable and let's adapt to that nature on that second side was an unknown person who wanted to make digital currency. The problem for them with digital currency is that it is an infinitely copyable thing. If I have a digital dollar and can copy it forever, well, that kind of makes it worthless. As we've mentioned, digital locks aren't forever. So money on the internet has rested on the idea of authority, usually a bank that decides who has what money. Now, that unknown person I mentioned wanted to make a digital currency but didn't want an authority deciding who had what money. They wanted to make a decentralized currency where everyone would be able to tell which coin was held in which wallet without having an authority holding the power. This could still preserve anonymity since you could hide who owned what wallets. But how do you make that work when anybody can copy your digital coin at any time? The answer was a ledger. In analog terms, a ledger is that big book, right? That big leather bound book that the guy sitting on the really high desk has and records all the transactions in. If you have a solid ledger that can tell you which coins have been moved into which wallets, conceivably you could always know who has what coins. It wouldn't matter if you copied a coin. What would matter was what the ledger said. Now that helps, but of course, Data is not only infinitely copyable, it's also editable. How do you make sure the ledger is always accurate and that malicious folks don't sneak in and change the record of which wallet has which coins so that their wallet has more coins than it should? The quick answer would, of course, be an authority watching it, but that's a bank, and that's back to a centralized authority that you have to trust. What if you don't want to have to trust anyone? We have some examples of that now, maybe even closer to home than you think. If you have a shared Google Doc with a team, you probably don't worry about having one person deciding what goes into it or not. You know that the team will correct any errors, and no one person on your team is likely to make a catastrophic change, especially because you can undo their changes. An even larger example of this is Wikipedia. Worries over the decades have been that Wikipedia would be inaccurate or defaced. But we've seen that, with enough eyes on the content— Wikipedia is about as accurate as a centralized encyclopedia, and defacements don't last long at all and don't happen that often. In both those cases, of course, you have a centralized server. In the Docs case, Google. In the Wikipedia case, Wikimedia Foundation. What if we don't even want to trust a single server for the content? In 1982, cryptographer David Chaum published a dissertation called Computer systems established, maintained, and trusted by mutually suspicious groups. See where he's going? Stuart Haber and W. Scott Stornetta built on this in 1991, describing a secure chain of blocks for such a system, and those two, along with David Bayer in 1992, improved the efficiency of that system to let multiple document certificates be collected in one block. These plans still relied on trusted parties for some small things like timestamps and needed better methods for how to add blocks. The answer to all of that came to someone, or possibly a group of someones, who published their plan in 2008 under the name Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, I almost hesitate to mention that name because immediately we risk getting distracted over who was Satoshi Nakamoto. For our purposes, it doesn't matter. Whether it was a human, alien, dog, AI, whatever. Whoever it was published the plans for a blockchain in 2008. And of course, saying the word blockchain itself risks distracting you into talking about Bitcoin and why it exists and whether it's a currency and whether it should be valued as it is. For our purposes here, that doesn't matter either. If you understand what just a blockchain is, you'll be a lot closer to understanding Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and things like non fungible tokens and other confusing stuff. So let's focus on the blockchain, and the blockchain itself is a fairly simple and elegant idea. The blockchain is a ledger that cannot be edited easily. It's made up of blocks of data. Each block of data contains a timestamp, transaction data that updates the ledger, and most importantly, a record of the previous block. That's it. The chain of blocks tells you which coins have gone to which wallets, and software can then scan the entire chain and know where all the coins are. The chain is linked by records of previous blocks, so you know exactly what order things happened in. I hear some of your questions. Can't anybody edit the timestamps and the amounts and such? The key is that bit about each block having a record of the previous block. That keeps things in order. A block that doesn't have that record is ignored. So why not just fake a block with the record? To prevent that, each block uses a cryptographic hash of the previous block. It's also often called a checksum or a digital fingerprint. A cryptographic hash is a one-way function. It's very difficult to reverse. Listen to our episode on public key cryptography for more on why this sort of thing can work, but it's a way to make something easy to share and hard to crack. If I write the message, Allison is the greatest and so is Steve, my hash function will put out something like DFFC, 788A, 790A, etc. That hash can be used to make sure that nothing has changed in the message if I look at it later. You know, Bart didn't get in there and have it say something about bicycles. Now, granted, in my example message here, it's pretty easy to see because the message is short. I could just memorize it. But Imagine the message is Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. And let's say I'm downloading the Cryptonomicon and want to make sure I'm getting the real authorized text as approved by Neil Stevenson himself and not something that has words changed. Neil Stevenson can issue a cryptographic hash for me to check. I run the text of the Cryptonomicon through the hashing algorithm, and if I come up with the same number Neil Stevenson gives, I know it's the same text. This is what checksums do when you download software. If the cryptographic hash function is done right, it is computationally improbable that a different text could give the same or even a similar hash number. And likewise, if you give me a hash, it's really difficult for me to reverse engineer what the text is. And that's useful if you want to pass around an identifier. Okay, so that's a cryptographic hash. Back to the chain. Let's say block one in the chain has a timestamp and transaction data. To make block two, We'll create a cryptographic hash of block one and add that to the next timestamp and transactions data. That's all block two. To make block three, we do a hash of block two, and then we add our new timestamp and our new transactions. This is how the chain happens. Block three has a hash of block two, which itself contains a hash of block one. Each block contains a link to every previous block. But of course, we could still just infinitely copy the blockchain, right? Yes, blockchains use that as a strength. This is where our Wikipedia analogy from earlier plays in. A peer-to-peer system is used where the chain of blocks is copied over and over, the more times the better. If two different versions of a block show up in the chain, say there's a block 3A and 3B, both with the cryptographic hash of block 2. An algorithm in the system can determine a score, and the higher scoring block is kept. Across a sufficient scale, this means most copies of the ledger agree, and the one that most agree is considered the legitimate one. This makes it hard to manipulate, since you would have to manipulate a majority of the entire peer-to-peer system to try to force a change. There's no central point of attack. But I hear you, attacks could still be made. What if you just start a bunch of nodes until you have the majority of the nodes? Then you can make all your nodes determine which blocks are valid and undermine the whole network. That's what's called a 51% attack. You may hear about concerns about that. One defense against that is called proof of work. Another is called proof of stake. Both say you can only record blocks on the network if you meet certain criteria. And that criteria is costly. Now, despite how it sounds, proof of stake is not based on the number of coins in your wallet or that you have cooked a piece of meat. Uh, If it was based on the number of coins in your wallet, that would just mean the richest person would dominate the network. Proof of stake is usually based on coin age, aged stake, and some other random factors. To oversimplify, The longer you hang on to the coin, the higher your stake is considered. Let's say you had a coin in your wallet and you haven't spent it for 90 days, but everyone else on the network only has coins that have been in their wallet for 60 days, you would have the highest stake and get to calculate the next block, but your coin goes to zero age once you've used it as your proof of stake. So you can't keep dominating the network with your 90-day-old coin. Other random factors can be used to keep very large collections from dominating. That's the random part of it. The one used by Bitcoin, and somewhat more common, is called proof of work. Proof of work was invented by Cynthia Dwork and Moni Naor in 1993 as a defense against denial-of-service attacks and spam in blockchains, It's used to have a node earn the right to record a block. The node has to compute a hard but not intractable function, something that takes a lot of computing power. Let's use Bitcoin's blockchain as the example of how a block can be added. The Bitcoin blockchain calls this mining because you not only get to add a block to the chain, you get rewarded with some Bitcoin. You've mined some coin. To get the right to add a block, a miner has to generate a hash that is acceptable to the algorithm. There are approximately 4 billion possible answers. When the algorithm is satisfied, the block is added. Every other peer in the network can easily verify that that is in fact the right answer. And the miner then gets rewarded with some coin in their wallet, hence the term miner. It's one of the reasons Bitcoin mining is energy intensive, because the mining gets harder as the network ages, requiring more computation, which uses more energy. Now, Through the course of this, I've skipped over lots of other objections because most of them are answered by the scale of the network. Uh, For instance, how how does the algorithm enforce the proof of work? Well, because it's copied so many times, any attempt to change it would be ignored, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, the blockchain is a way to guarantee that a thing has happened in a way that everyone can see and verify. It's difficult to add something to a blockchain in a way that everyone on the network would accept, but once it's there, anybody can see it so for a coin that information is who has what coins for a house title it could be who owns the house for a piece of fruit being picked it could be when it was picked by whom what truck it went on etc for so-called non-fungible tokens it's who owns the first vine video or something like that in every case there's actually not a thing that exists independently of the ledger the ledger on the blockchain is the record of what's true Now, weaknesses exist outside of the chain if a person lies about which truck the fruit went on, for instance, or records the wrong name on the house title. But once the information is in the blockchain, it's very hard for it to be expunged. That's it. A blockchain is literally a chain of blocks of data that's hard to alter. In other words, I hope now you know a little more about blockchain.